At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, what Vladimir Putin means when he says Russia will demonstrate unprecedented military capabilities in Ukraine. But first, joining us is John Cofrancesco of Fortress Information Technology, a cybersecurity intelligence firm, uh, as we look at uh, the stuff that the Russians are up to and what might be headed our way. John, thanks very much again for joining us. Well, thank you for having me back. Uh, it's it's always a pleasure having you on. A word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And I want to point out that Northrop Grumman also sp- sponsors our uh, cyber coverage in general. Uh, John, uh, the Russian playbook includes aggressive cyber operations before a kinetic a- attack, uh, which we expect uh, at any moment. We saw some a denial of service operations and banking attacks last week uh, attributed to the Russian side. Uh, and uh, we have just seen in the last 24 hours an extensive amount of uh, action uh, in uh, Ukraine, U.S. government uh, saying that they do not have attribution on that yet. But I think everybody t- expects that to be Russian. Uh, what are we seeing the Russians doing over there and what does it mean? Well, what we're seeing them do is exactly what we've expected them to do. So when you talk about the cyber attacks that Russia and it is going to be Russia who's, who's done this, they water out into two, two categories. The first category is to destroy services. So they want to interrupt the ability to communicate. They want to block out uh, Ukrainian government leaders from being able to perform their jobs at this critical time. And then the second thing they want to do is they want to terrorize the people. That's what we've seen in addition to the denial of service attacks on government websites, attacks on banking and financial institutions in Ukraine, and actually a, a very pernicious type of attack where they're actually using services to send text messages to ordinary citizens telling them pretty frightening things like evacuate or we will kill you. Um, ATMs are no longer giving out cash. So they're they're really using, uh, I would say, uh, terrorist like tactics. Um, let me uh, take you to what uh, all of this means. And obviously, the U.S. government uh, has warned uh, that uh, when the Russians do come in, they are going to round people up. They are going to execute people um, and if not, send uh, some of them uh, to uh, put some under arrest and obviously send some back uh, to um, uh, Russia. Um, what are intelligence agencies warning about what could happen in the United States? As we saw some weeks ago, FBI, uh, National Security Agency, Cybersecurity uh, Infrastructure Security Agency have all put out warnings that we expect Russians to uh, execute uh, offensive operations against the United States. A lot of concerns uh, whether solar winds uh, was just an intelligence campaign or whether there were leave behinds. I know that um, there, there's been extensive work on that. Uh, going on. I know you're familiar with that as well. What are U.S. intelligence agencies warning? What's the latest coming from the U.S. government about what uh, the uh, United States and Americans uh, and indeed our allies can expect? Well, I I think they've had a pretty um, 
somber tone on this, and it's been consistent. Basically, the, the story is shields up. That is verbatim what we're hearing out of CISA and others. The reality is, is that publicly, they're not saying a whole bunch in specifics of what's going to be attacked. I can share with you the sentiment that I'm hearing both on the Hill and then various folks in the industry, and, and that's these guys are going to attack critical infrastructure. They're likely to choose critical infrastructure that isn't going to draw a lot of attention. So I think it is unlikely that they're going to turn the lights off but very likely that they'll do things that have economic impact. So look to attack oil and gas, potentially food sources. Let's see if they can drive the cost of chicken or other staple goods up. So I think that is very likely. Certainly an attack on the power grid or something like that would be a major escalation. I think at this time, really their interest is in not bringing us into this in a more material way. So I certainly expect them to do something, but, but I, I doubt it will be the sort of nightmare scenario. Um, but either way, it's a serious thing. Um, what does, uh, right, I mean, so from a Shields Up standpoint, obviously one of the big concerns uh, that even uh, veteran uh, and and top strategist friends of mine have expressed concern about, and you joined us to discuss it, about whether or not we're doing enough to actually protect uh, the national security uh, and national, uh, or I should say, you know, na national security industrial base, uh, as well as uh, other strategic targets, right? So, is there any greater specificity and is the government helping folks, uh, you know, batten those those hatches down and help erect those shields at this point? I mean, are we doing enough to safeguard enough before this before it's go time? I think the practical reality is, is that the folks that we have on station right now, Jenny Sterling and the rest of the system folks, they are doing commendable work. Uh, they're moving as quickly as they can. They're putting out free tools, giving out intelligence. They're trying to align as best they can everybody in the business community to do what ought to be done. But, but there's no getting around this. And this is a, a sort of a tough answer to give, but it is a truthful one. We're already too late. These guys are already in our networks. They're already in our critical infrastructure. We're not going to be able to stop the majority of these attacks if they choose to execute on them. What we can do is respond to them effectively. I think when this is over, or certainly as we're, we're coming through it, we'll need to make some serious changes about how we, how we treat cyber in this country. And I'll use an analogy here. It's, you know, we've had a leaky roof for a long time. Now we have a potential of being hit by a hurricane. The roof may just come off. I don't think that's going to happen, but, but there's a potential for it. And certainly uh, our country's slowness to, to invest in this space is, is potentially, uh, potentially going to penalize us here in a major way. Um, you, you, you have been on this for a long time. Anybody who knows me knows I've been warning about this for a long time. And unfortunately, we are uh, where we are, right? We don't have enough people. We don't have enough people with clearances. We don't have enough people with the technical training, uh, so on, so on, so on, so on. Um, what is, how, how should folks be triaging what it is they do at this point, right? Uh, because uh, ultimately, you know, if you protect everything, you're really protecting nothing. What has to be your philosophy going in to defend your networks uh, on, on from, from what we expect is going to come our way? You know, even if it's not going to be uh, devastating, that's in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, everything is relative. If it's your data that's been compromised or corrupted, that's a pretty significant event. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be working on continuity of operations right now. Right. There's, there are a finite number of services that every organization has, particularly in critical infrastructure, that if those services fail, they cannot perform their duties, they cannot perform their roles, not just as a company, but in society. And so I think this is a perfectly good time to, to do some walkthroughs with your general staff to say, hey, what happens if uh, we lose this capability? What happens if we lose that capability? 
And if there are backup systems, which hopefully there are for, for, for those organizations to double check those, to make sure those, those backup and tertiary systems are prepared and that people know how to use them. I think one of the biggest things that happens when organizations who may have the technology, but don't have the sort of the social preparedness is the breach happens. And then there's this moment of panic before everybody sort of gets in line and figures it out. Well, we could probably save ourselves that moment of panic by just having organizations take the time right now to just walk through with their staffs what happens if XYZ capabilities fail over the next uh, weeks and months. Um, the uh, president of the United States had a conversation with Vladimir Putin uh, last year at the height of the ransomware uh, assaults, making it clear uh, that uh, attacks on America's critical infrastructure uh, would not be acceptable, would be a red line. Uh, it appears that uh, Vladimir Putin is, is not abiding by that. And there is uh, some suggestion uh, that he he never has been right. I mean, if you look at space and cyberspace, there are, there are a lot of things that we are not revealing, in part because it suggests that we have not been um, countering some of the things that have been going on. I want you to put your strategist hat on. How does the United States need to respond to some of these transgressions? We're not the one who's attacking Ukraine. We're trying to help uh, a friend. Uh, and ultimately, the guy who's precipitating the situation is Vladimir Putin. He's the one who's massed nearly 200,000 uh, forces on the border of the country. And Putin just uh, indicated today, right, he is going to demonstrate unprecedented weapons uh, against this innocent uh, country under false pretenses. How does the United States need to respond uh, in the event that we do face um, protracted, offensive, obviously Russian cyber operations, right? I mean, th there somebody's going to have to pay a price, right? And if so, how? Well, to be clear, I would be absolutely stunned if, if we didn't use some offensive capability against Russia here in the near term. Now, I have no, no way of knowing that for a fact, but it has been our modus operandi to fight fighter with fire in cybersecurity. Now, we, we may not find that, find that out in public for years potentially, but, but I would be absolutely stunned if we didn't use, utilize some of our capabilities. To be frank, our capabilities are second to none, but uh, we're going to have to meet this animal, and he is an animal. We're going to have to meet him in the field, and, and that field is cyber, so he is going to have to understand that if he attacks uh, a chicken plant, we're going to attack a pierogi plant. If he turns off the electricity here, we'll, we'll knock out all of his electricity. If we don't meet him on those terms, uh, I'm afraid that, that men like this, and this is an opinion, but men like this just don't back down. I mean, honestly, I was listening to his speech and, uh, you know, we, we've heard men like this in history. They, they have to be met with force. So as a strategist, I would want to be measured. We don't want to widen the conflict. But he has to understand that, that there is a red line and it must not be crossed. Um, I, I know that you and I will uh, discuss, right? I mean, there are always there, there are lessons learned already, right? We know we have a leaky roof. What are some of the things that lawmakers need to consider? And what are the things that go into that accelerated bucket of action that we have to take? So because this is going to be protracted, right? This is not going to be one and done. Anything that happens, whether sanctions or anything else, is going to be protracted, right? I mean, ideally, you would love to think uh, that the oligarchs are going to uh, literally put him in a basement and shoot him in the next 48 hours. That's unlikely uh, going to happen. Um, you know, hope springs eternal, but, you know, uh, that's unlikely to happen. Um, you know, how do we need to be thinking about what are our priorities uh, in, John, say, the next two months, next four months, next six, six months? 
Yeah, that's so if I if I had the magic wand, if I was the uh, cyber czar for for a few months, I would start here. I would look at every major service um, that Americans depend on for their lives, right? Water, sewage, uh, medical care—these things that are absolutely fundamental to our way of life. I would immediately implement uh, regulations that would look very close to the regulations that are on the energy industry, which is called NERC SIP, Critical Infrastructure Protection. So I would water those back to those key infrastructures. And that, to be clear, would be expensive and painful. Um, I would bolster uh, those organizations with some sort of subsidy um, and, and just get on with the business of securing them. The reality is Russia does not want to escalate with us. They do want to back us down. The best way to position us against this sort of attack is to make sure those key services, the services on which we all rely, are genuinely secure. And there's a practical reality, right? There is no perfect answer to cybersecurity. The Russians are smart. They're very sophisticated. So they'll find a way around even the best defenses. We also need to be putting in place the right responses so that when we, we lose a capability, we can quickly get it back on. There's a big difference between losing the lights for 15 minutes and losing it for 15 days. Uh, certainly we've invested there, but there are other industries that, that haven't had that type of investment. We could do that now. And, and what are the investments? Uh, very briefly, uh, where are the places that we haven't invested where we do have to invest? What are those places that are somewhat more uh, vulnerable? Yeah, my biggest concern is in water, uh, water and sewage. Um, you know, I, I, I like to turn on the lights. I also need to have a flushing toilet and have, you know, running water for my children, right? Uh, a lot of municipalities run the water. They don't have large budgets. Uh, we saw about a year ago in, in, in Tampa that uh, there was an attack there. So that is the place I would start first. That would be my number one, right? And it's, it's almost like a, a hierarchy of needs. Let's make sure that the, the electricity and the water is going to be on. And then I would work down from there, probably into to primary food and oil and gas uh, companies next. John, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Look forward to having you back on again soon uh, for another update. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. And it is my honor to welcome on the program Michael Kaufman, uh, who heads the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security Think Tank. Uh, Michael, uh, honor and pleasure to have you back on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, it is uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, you've been way ahead of the power curve. You and your colleague, uh, Jeff Edmonds, who was uh, the Russia expert on the National Security Council at the tail end of the Obama administration, uh, is, is your colleague. You both wrote a great piece uh, just a couple of days ago uh, in Foreign Affairs talking about what a Russian invasion, how it would unfold, and some of the capabilities that will be demonstrated. Vladimir Putin has made it clear, uh, you know, it's, it's a line that he likes using. You know, we have offensive weapons, the likes of which the world has never seen. And he made it clear in an address, uh, his recent address, that he would demonstrate those capabilities uh, in Ukraine, uh, whether space, whether unmanned, whether AI, uh, and, and the like. When, when he says that, what does it mean? Because it's clear that he wants to demonstrate Russian military force in a way that sends a global signal, a little bit like we did uh, in 1991 and the Gulf War. Well, part of it is always... Um a bit of saber rattling aimed at the United States. It's a message aimed to bolster sort of what Russians call strategic deterrence. But a big part of that threat is very real and very practical. I mean, they are set up for a large scale military operation in Ukraine. And unlike the fighting of 2014, 2015, which was very constrained, basically Russia was fighting with both arms tied behind its back in terms of how it was using uh, force in those conflicts. 
this next iteration of the war is going to be largely unrestrained. It is going to be the employment of uh, air power, of artillery, MLRS, strike systems, combined arms maneuver formations going in to Ukraine along multiple axes. I don't want to paint the sort of scary picture, but it is very real. They, you know, their their posturing uh, is such that they have over 150,000 troops. And if you count auxiliaries, some of the um, follow-on forces like National Guard to hold territory, it's over 190,000. And um, based on all indications, that disposition of forces is meant to uh, pursue maximalist political aims in Ukraine. Um, you know, so the reality is that in this case, he's, he's not uh, just making repetitive threats. Like he, it, it looks very clear as though Russia is going to follow through on the things he said and in some ways alluded to during his uh, long and ominous uh, presidential address. What are some of the capabilities uh, the Russians will be demonstrating? You and your uh, colleague Sam Bendet uh, has joined us uh, consistently uh, and over many years to discuss some of the unmanned capabilities uh, the Russians have been investing in. What are what are some of the capabilities we're going to see the Russians demonstrate here? I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of early use of cyber warfare and electronic warfare. Cyber warfare enabling, but electronic warfare in particular. You've already seen um, uh, sort of very light application of it. For example, extensive uh, denial of service attacks currently taking place against Ukraine. That's nothing significant. But I think in, in the opening phase of the conflict, you're going to see uh, the use of long-range standoff precision-guided weapons, um, uh, quasi-ballistic missile systems, cruise missiles, and the like. I think you're going to see a brief but fairly intense initiation of airstrikes and, and perhaps heliborne operations. And uh, the use of basically the gamut of modern weaponry that Russia has available or modernized systems, many of which we've seen applied in a limited fashion or maybe a boutique application in conflicts like Syria, where they've been sort of tested and, and developed since uh, uh, 2015. Uh, are we going to see hypersonics, right? I mean, he hinted at that in his address as well. You know, we may. I don't know um, where we are with Sircon. Probably not true hypersonics. Definitely maybe systems like Kinjal, which are, uh, you know, air ballistic missiles. But I think I think probably true operational range hypersonic systems may, may not reach initial operating capability or sort of maybe in, in latter stage of testing. I'm, it's hard to tell where they are with things like Sircon. We are definitely going to see a panoply of weapons being used here and uh, integrate it with um, uh, more modern means of ISRs. You know, Russia may, may be quite far behind in, in development of, of things like UCAVs, but in recent years has acquired thousands of drones um, and proliferated them across the force for targeting tactical and more operational depth. They really, they really work to expand uh, what they call uh, recon strike and recon fire uh, loops essentially the ability to leverage the tremendous firepower that the Russian military brings to the battlefield together with the ability to actually target and see things and, and engage them in, in, in real time and do battle damage assessment, uh, which, which was often missing. You know, Russia brings a lot of its fires in the ground force, not, not even as much in the Air Force compared to Western militaries. Right. In the military, the way it's structured is very much an artillery army with lots of tanks. You know, at the heart of the Russian army is artillery. Russian military uses our uses firepower and fires 
decisively and then sort of exploits that with maneuver formations. And, and one of the things that we've been missing for a long time is the, is the ability to, to see things at tactical and operational depths to make use of its firepower. And it's gotten after that problem set substantially over the last decade. Uh, and uh, we should, uh, right, I mean, artillery is the king of battle in, uh, in the Soviet and the Russian order. And we should also expect, right, lots of use of caliber, lots of use uh, also of Iskander, the conventional tipped ones. Oh, absolutely. They've dragged a lot of additional battalions from Iskander missile brigades uh, to into the AOR. So they, a lot of the armies that deployed basically all grabbed a battalion with uh, transloaders. And I think we're going to see air-launched cruise missiles and all sorts of standoff capabilities being employed early on. And they've also brought in um, what Russia are considered to be military district-level assets, high-power artillery and very long-range MLRS, 200-millimeter cluster munitions and the like. From your standpoint, there's a lot of debate going on about whether or not he's clearing a corridor, uh, a land corridor uh, that connects uh, Russia proper to uh, Crimea, or whether we're talking about uh, seizing the country as a whole by even leveraging naval power uh, that's in the Black Sea. Ships have been rearming and troops have been, uh, right, I think there are seven, eight amphibious ships, uh, which could come in very handy uh, as well. Do you think this is a corridor opening operation and is limited to the east of the country? Or is this something from your standpoint that is, we're going to take down all of Ukraine and then do it so brutally and effectively at the top of the program, John Co-Francesco of Fortress Information uh, Security mentioned that you know the, the Russians are sending individual text messages to people saying, you're either going to be arrested or killed when we come in. Is, is this kind of a, a broad whole nation campaign or is it a corridor opening campaign? Um, okay, it's definitely not a corridor opening campaign. I just want to be frank, this Lambert's to Crimea thesis never, never made tremendous sense to me. Um, and, and the problem is with, with military operations like this, it's a bit of uh, in for a penny and for a pound. So what I think you are going to see is a campaign that involves a rapid advance towards the capital to encircle the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, and attempt to impose regime change, and a much larger uh, pincer movement to try to envelop the bulk of Ukrainian forces in the eastern part of the country uh, near the Donbass. Uh, this is going to be... a a campaign that, um, while not an attempt to occupy all of Ukraine, it will definitely have maximalist political aims. And it is going to involve the bulk of probably Ukraine's eastern and southern regions, right? It's hard to predict, but I just want to be very clear for folks, it's not, this is not a limited operation. And a limited operation will have no definable political objectives, to be honest. There's nothing that we could potentially gain. It would come with very high costs. In fact, the cost for a fairly limited operation are like to be just as high as, as, as something more significant. Um, and, and at this stage, Russia is likely going to be using overwhelming force because that's going to, it's going to be the, the only way they can decisively achieve success in the initial period of war. And, and we're talking about massive Ukrainian casualties, right? I mean, once the Russians circle some of these units, it is not going to go well for whoever is on the receiving end of that. It's definitely going to be a uh, not a difference um, in degree, but a difference in kind of the type of conflict we've seen in Europe in recent decades, and definitely very different from the fighting of 2014 and 2015. It's going to be on a scale we've not seen in quite some time. Putin began this um, by viewing a nuclear exercise uh, last week, and there was a lot of discussion about how 
he will array his nuclear forces both for messaging, right? I mean, as part of Russian doctrine, uh, escalate to de-escalate, uh, to be able to use tactical nuclear weapons. Some have speculated that in the Chernobyl area or contaminated areas, he may want to detonate a weapon, a small weapon, in order to get people's uh, attention. Um, you know, I've guessed that why wouldn't he deploy nuclear-armed blackjack bombers and, and land them uh, in Ukraine and say, you know, hey, these guys were going to go nu nuclear. I'm stopping this and nipping it in the bud. What What is the potential role? How should people be thinking about nuclear or not in your estimation and how it plays uh, in, in this period, because from a messaging standpoint, the Russians will want a message to our allies. Are you sure you want to go there? So Russia typically uses nuclear weapons as part of uh, strategic deterrence. And the purpose of it is principally aimed at communicating to the United States that should the United States think about intervening in the conflict, directly contesting uh, a Russian operation in Ukraine that is going to have strong escalation um, risks. And, you know, in Russia, they understand that we pay very close attention to, you know, the nuclear word, right? And things like things related to nuclear weapons definitely get our attention. Um, but it's entirely aimed at us. Nuclear weapons have no role in local wars and Russian military doctrine in this conflict. It's kind of a red herring. Uh, most of Russia emphasis in between nuclear weapons and general purpose forces is um, non-nuclear uh, elements of deterrence, which is the use of long-range precision-guided weapons and fairly advanced offensive and defensive capabilities. There's a strong emphasis in Russian military thinking on strategic conventional forms of deterrence prior to getting anything near theater nuclear weapons and that type. So I, I, and, and, and I'm not surprised people immediately run to the, you know, something, something right. nuclear, right. But it's got nothing to do with conflict. It's the, the big issue is that at the end of the day, we are nuclear powers and all these conflicts do play out uh, under a nuclear shadow to some extent. And there could very well be a follow on crisis in Europe. From this, people focus on a war in Ukraine, but they forget that given the way the conflict spiral is going to emerge with U.S. sanctions against Russia, likely Russian retaliation, this is not the end of anything, but rather it's unfortunate beginning, and we are likely to have a follow-on crisis over security in Europe, and that would be a Russian-NATO crisis down the line. I don't mean, you know, Vago, the day after, but months after, right? This is this takes us into into a new and uncertain chapter in European security. Let me uh, ask you then the next logical question in that, right? I mean, there are a lot of uh, Westerners uh, that are in Ukraine. There are a lot of um, you know citizens from NATO uh, and EU countries. Um, it is unlikely that in an operation so big and likely as indiscriminate as uh, history has shown that the Russians can be in the use of their force. Um, deliberately so, right? I mean, whether in Syria or anywhere else, we've seen how indiscriminate the Russians can be. Um, how, how does that element of it play out? And what does the alliance then do, if anything, right? I mean, Putin is the kind of bully that unless he sees some, you know, even, even if he sees force and pressure against them, he has a tendency of being able to see through that and calculates I can weather whatever, you know, I have 700 million and billion in the bank, right? I can, I can weather this. I can divide the alliance uh, in another three months by grinding this out. How, how does this play out, you think? And, and, and does NATO get pulled into this ultimately 
whether it likes it or not. I don't think Nayla necessarily gets pulled into this, but um, it's hard. It's hard to know how it plays out. I think I think the Russian assumption is that uh, they can withstand Western punishment, and that ultimately it'll be temporary. In some years down the line from now, we'll come back to talk to them about strategic stability, arms control, and so on and so forth. As they expect the cost to be temporary, but the gains to be permanent. And if they do this, they're essentially signaling they're taking a bet. They're shorting America's like geopolitical stock, right? Because essentially they are taking a bet on the decline of U.S. influence in in this uh, in this action, and um, you know to some extent they're going to substantially uh, damage the the notion that U.S. and Europeans are the arbiters of security in Europe, right? It's going to make very clear that 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 Russia. Um, uh, is is going to have a strong and very negative role uh, in large part tied to its the, some principal fact that it is outside of NATO the number one military power in Europe and it is not a stakeholder in European security architecture, right? And long term, that that is oh that was always questionable as a sustainable proposition. So. You know, there there are some who uh, have said that the sanctions that we imposed, that the president imposed on uh, Russia, as well as the moves by uh, allies and partners, were uh, su- surprised uh, the Kremlin. Uh, you know, they were convinced that, for example, nothing would happen to Nord Stream. In all fairness, let's just say it's been halted. It hasn't been canceled. It's been halted. Um, but you know, the, the president did put sanctions on uh, the Russian pension fund, uh, VCB bank, military bank, oligarchs, and a lot more, including the Russian state bank, could be targeted next. It's clear the administration is talking to allies and partners around the world, including in Asia, to restrict technology flow to the Russians. Um, is, is the price that they're paying high, higher than they expected, and from your standpoint, what is it that ultimately deters Putin? Because his performance with his National Security Council was stunning. Margo, we don't have any any means of deterring Russian military action in Ukraine. We've tried everything at it, and I don't expect sanctions to work. So let me just be clear about that. I, in other cases, we have strong means of deterrence, and this just isn't one of them. And... Uh, we've always been ambiguous about our stakes in Ukraine, about our relationship to Ukraine, uh, and the implications of Ukraine for European security. Right? We've made a lot of lofty statements uh, over the years, but um, now we're being truly, truly challenged and pressed to it. Okay, uh, the National Security Council performance. Well, that is, uh, you know, uh, scenes from a personalist authoritarian system is what she saw. And people who hold on to the notions about something, something Russian oligarchs, like they're still in the 1990s, or that some elites are going to challenge Putin within them, or there's, um, you know, rumblings internally in the system, and that might give them pause. Boy, are they mistaken, and they do not understand how Russian politics work at all. And if that National Security Council session didn't convince you, I don't know what else would. The point of that video session was to have basically the entirety of that regime on video, commit themselves and petition Putin to recognize all our DNR, but essentially commit themselves on video to what happens next, right? right. So it, it basically shows you the, the extent of his, of his power and authority. And you saw how he was dressing down the head of Russian intelligence, Narishkin, 
um, during that session. It was, uh, you know, if it was, <laughs> it's, it's hard to feel bad for a person like that, but just looking, but just watching it live was, well, that's not true. We weren't watching it live. They were pretending it was live, but it was actually filmed five hours beforehand. Um, let me, let me ask, uh, our time is short. Let me ask you one last question. Um, the president said, and, and obviously he is being a statesman uh, and saying that, look, our, you know, we have no animosity toward Putin nor to Russia, but ultimately, is, is it time to recalibrate that Russia is not a competitor, that everything Putin has been saying is actually an enemy and an adversary, and that we should look at it? He's not a potential adversary. He is interfering in networks. He has said he will attack our networks. He's crossing infrastructure red lines, cyber red lines, space red lines, um, assassinating. Um, I mean, ultimately, don't we need to fundamentally look at this challenge differently and look at it as an enemy and then plan, react, and discuss accordingly as opposed to keeping this sort of odd duality of you know, with, with just a little more talking and engagement, we can get Putin to sort of see things our way. This is not, this is just not working. And it's not likely to work because I don't think he really sees the sovereignty of the Baltics, you know, or the integrity of Poland, right? I mean, he's not very far away from declaring those sort of bankrupt either. I mean, how do we need to look at Russia at this point, as uncomfortable as it may be? So I don't think we have to fundamentally rethink anything. The challenge wasn't in how we, how we looked at Russia from, from the standpoint of whether it was an adversary. I thought the standing NDS did a fine job of establishing that Russia was an adversary and a competitor. The biggest challenge we've had is qualifying what kind of adversary it is. People have loved to hold on to a paper tiger fallacy of Russia where they wanted to believe that Russia was dangerous, but actually very weak and in decline easily to turn. And this has been uh, a, a really intellectual malpractice, particularly in the defense community, which very much wants to focus on China, is sort of almost willfully negligent in its approach to Russia and the real situation of European security, in my view. Because Russia is not in any kind of precipitous decline. Military power is still the trump card in international relations, and Russia has plenty of it. And that is only actually going to increase looking out into this decade. Uh, it's a persistent adversary and a persistent threat. You know, people like to think of China as the pacing threat. Yeah. Well, Russia's the persistent threat. It was there before China is. And I'm going to tell you, it's probably going to be there after, uh, uh, well, after China peaks, if it hasn't already. And I'm not, of course, arguing for, you know, prioritization of Russia over China. I never would say that. But the short, you know, the thrust of my view of it is, look, it was never going to be China only. But a lot of people in the defense community wanted to make it China mostly. Yeah. And the truth is that, you know, Russia gets a pretty strong vote about where it's going to be on the agenda. You can see where that vote is. That's a country going to put itself on top of the US national security agenda so far for four months straight, basically, and on top of European, Europe's security agenda. And Russia's not going anywhere. A lot of people talk about Russia, sometimes in defense establishment, that yes, it's a threat. But over time, it'll get easier. Like there's a, like a meteor or something that's going to hit Russia in the coming years, and then we won't have to deal with that as a strategic problem. So, but we will. So my only concern is not how we think about Russia. I think we, we got the adversarial part of the relationship very right. What we didn't get in, I think, right for a long time, and I definitely see that, that intellectual shift turning around the past year, is how seriously we take it and the extent to which we perceive it as an enduring challenge, right? And, and we get out of this uh, historical game of finding intellectual alibis 
for not dealing with Russian power and international politics and then ending up in situations like this Vago. What's happening here right now is not a surprise to a lot of people who followed Russia and the development of the situation of the past year. This is probably one of the world's best signposted crises uh, in, in terms of uh, European security. I'll just be very frank, but this is not this is not, this is not something that couldn't have been foreseen. Michael, thanks very, very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Look forward to having you back on again uh, soon. And let's uh, keep our uh, fingers crossed for uh, those people we know who are going to be in harm's way soon. Yep. Thanks very thanks much for, for joining us. Thanks for having me back on your program. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.